0: Welcome to A New and Ancient Story, a show dedicated to the transformation of self and society. We're moving from the story of separation to a new story of interbeing. We explore it all—technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education—because the changes that are gathering today will leave no aspect of our world untouched. For deeper engagement with these ideas, join our community at newandancientstory.net.
1: So here I am once again, Charles Eisenstein, this time in conversation or something like it with Kelly Brogan. Good friend of mine and uh, author of A Mind of Your Own. I describe Kelly as a renegade psychiatrist. And uh, that's the beginning anyway. So, hi Kelly.
2: Hello. I'm bringing you some Manhattan vibes. I don't know if you can hear
1: that. Yeah, I can. The siren,
2: have ambulance in the background. It's sort of De rigueur here.
1: So I'm just gonna, like, I don't know. When I, whenever I talk to Kelly, we just kind of fall over ourselves with all these things we want to talk about. So, but I'm gonna at least seed the field a little bit with my favorite Christiana Murphy quote that you can comment on, which is. It is no measure of sanity to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. What does yeah. that stimulate in you?
2: You know, I think it's it's one of our powerful points of overlap because I came to this conclusion uh, that symptoms of mental illness, so to speak, if we're going to use that phrase, are just that, our symptoms are some sort of a message or a sign that has its own inherent meaning. I came to that conclusion actually through sort of the portal of, Uh, physical healing and understanding the role of bodily wellness in psychospiritual experience. And I think you've come to this conclusion from a really a, a meta assessment and examination of the role that existential dis-ease plays in progressing, you know, cultural narratives. And the, common ground you know that we we share is a very controversial one right because most people are now uh sold this idea that symptoms are a bad thing that struggling with malaise struggling with fatigue struggling with inattention struggling with a feeling of disconnection is Evidence that there's something wrong, first of all, that there's something to be worried about, second of all, and that third of all, it's probably irresponsible to be curious about it or investigate it in some sort of um, more strategic way because the only responsible thing you could do is to deal with it and most likely deal with it on a pharmacologic level. Obviously, my training as a conventional psychiatrist really only offered me. That option with a bit of a window dressing of psychotherapy, things like cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. But the whole point was to get the symptoms gone because symptoms are fundamentally a bad thing um, that your body is up to or your mind is up to and something that needs to be addressed.
1: Well, let me just break in here because I I bet that any uh, conventional medical person would strongly disagree with the characterization that they're only addressing symptoms. A pharmacologically oriented psychiatrist would say, no, 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 no. We're addressing the cause. The cause is an imbalance of serotonin in your brain, and we're dealing with the cause, not the symptom. What do you have to say well, to
2: yes, that? Yes, that is that's true on a meta messaging level. You know that we talk to patients about the chemical imbalance that's probably heritable. We sort of create for them a bit of um, an illusory infrastructure for their experience. But the truth is that there's a collusion, right? All that patients are really interested in is their symptoms being gone. And all that all that doctors are interested in is, you know, evidence that their symptoms are gone. So, in fact, in conventional training, the way that we quantify this is um, called the Global Assessment of Functioning, the GAF. And
3: if
2: if that isn't, you know, a way to reduce the human experience to productivity-oriented outcomes, I don't know what is. But really, what it does is look at
1: how well adjusted are you to a profoundly sick society, basically, and, and
2: and functioning being the only important metric of that you know so when we document in our what are called soap notes you know when we document in these uh, progress notes how patients are doing we're really only discussing uh, their symptoms so are they sleeping are they eating you know what is their concentration looking like are mm. they cutting themselves are they you know hoarding pills to commit suicide is there evidence of hallucinations you know It's just quantification of symptoms. So that's really the layer that we function at. And it's so interesting because I was just reflecting the other day because I have a couple of patients that I put on meds um, 10, 12 years ago, right? And so they've sort of followed me in this journey that I've Mm. personally been on. And they don't really know why they're still here with me, except that they sort of like me as a person because they don't know what I'm up to. And I seem to really have flown the coop in terms of like – any alignment with the treatment that I initiated for them, right? So I had a number of these patients the other week, like all clustered together for some reason in in a couple of days. And I was reflecting at the best that I could do when I was medicating patients was really just get them out of a crisis, essentially numb them, sedate them, mute them, to an extent that they were no longer in acute crisis, that was considered a good outcome, right mm-hmm. I never got them to a place of vitality or any sort of exuberant experience in life and never got them to some place new necessarily
1: you brought, them, you brought them back to freud 's ordinary misery
2: exactly and, yeah. and and they are miserable you know these patients are really miserable I mean they're struggling with a quality of life that i don't even you know, recognize as a meaningful outcome anymore in terms of my clinical practice now. But I mean, the amazing thing is that if you ignore the question that symptoms are asking, then you never embark on the journey and you never get to this new place. Right. Because I think intuitively we all know that we don't want to get back to normal. Normal sucked to begin with. Like we want to get somewhere new and it's just about how afraid of you are, you know, are you of that somewhere new? How willing are you to sort of take that leap? And that's where, you know, working with a healer or a guide or a teacher, or this kind of role that I find myself in now is is really performing just a sort of containment service, I guess, um, for that process of inquiry.
1: So when it comes to this idea of functioning, I think of, imagine if you were a psychiatrist uh, in Nazi Germany, and the death camp worker comes to you and says, you know, like, I just haven't, my heart isn't in my work anymore, you know, pulling that lever to gas the Jews, you know, and I just, I'm assailed by feelings of of worthlessness and I don't feel like getting out of bed in the morning and you fix that person so they can keep doing their job. Like that's, that's a rather extreme version. It's
2: not though. I can't tell you how many women I have worked with who've been in abusive, violent relationships that they have tolerated because medication in many ways has like turned the fire alarm off while the fire ends up raging. And -hmm. this is an extremely common model. Again, if we're prizing functioning, if we're prizing punching the clock, if we're prizing sort of business as usual, there could be a way of assessing psychiatric uh, medication interventions as being highly successful uh, because whatever they do, which is a largely unexplored territory of science, You know, for whatever they do to consciousness, most patients would agree that they have a blunting effect. And Mm -hmm. that part of what they allow for is a degree of tolerance or, as you said, you know, adaptation to potentially a highly dysfunctional uh, set of life circumstances.
1: Yeah. I mean, so normal, like normal functioning basically means complicity with the world destroying machine that Mm -hmm. comprises our economy, our political system and so on and so forth. And the system meets out varying levels of reward to those depending on how skillfully and enthusiastically they contribute to the machine. Now, normally a psychiatrist is somebody who's been given a fairly high level of reward, a high position, social status, money, and so forth. And that means that a psychiatrist would normally be more invested in believing in the fundamental. Rightness of the system that validates her, yes, yeah. yeah. which is why I'm always a bit surprised when because you know my job is essentially a uh, a kind of big picture critique and proposal of alternative to the existing system and the narratives underlying it. So I'm always kind of surprised when somebody who is in the matrix or has a position mm-hmm. of status in the matrix, like actually reads anything I write. Or um, likes what I'm saying. Usually, it's someone who's just dropped out. You know, it's not someone who's working on Wall Street. It's someone who left Wall Street. It's not somebody who's in government. It's someone who's left government. You know, it's not a CEO. It's someone who's a former CEO. A uh, lot like former doctors, former economists. A lot of them. So I'm, and I, so I feel surprised, but also this stirring of an unreasonable hope when I connect with people like you, because I'm like, maybe a revolution from the inside is possible, too.
3: Mm.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's so, it's, I rarely think of myself as still being on the inside until I realize that I am. Mm. You know, I think of myself as having left base camp um, to sort of hike out into the wilderness on my own, but then I am reminded repeatedly that, in fact, I still can function if i choose to as a bridge to the mainstream and that you know for example i'm on a listserv of some of the first several hundred what are called reproductive psychiatrists which essentially means uh, psychiatrists who are specialized in medicating pregnant and breastfeeding women which was believe it or not my specialty at the fellowship level
1: what's a a great idea what could go wrong with that i mean fetuses (laughs) need medicine too you know What if they get depressed?
2: Right, and what's crazy is it 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 helps me to actually have deep compassion for these people who have aligned themselves with making sure that women feel all right about taking medication at these times in their lives because I used to be one of those people and I thought I was doing a good thing. I was working really hard to advocate for the women I was treating. I wasn't like some negligent, you know, sort of like phoning it in kind of a doctor. I mean, I've always been really passionate it's been about different subjects but you know so I have compassion for these these providers but recently uh, I'm sort of a fly on the wall in this listserv right and I watch them discuss you know the latest research on medicating pregnant women with antipsychotics and with stabilizers etc and sort of cherry picking the data as we all do and someone recently brought up my book said and didn't know I was on the listserv right and said what do you think of what do you guys think of this book and I sort of was like gulp (laughs) you know Uh wow the moment has come and I really meditated about it because I thought okay I can stay quiet and just see what unfolds or I can say something and try and humanize how it is that I have you know found myself away from baby's camp right so I chose to do that and I told them you know about a bit about my story, you know, that I used to be totally conventionally trained. I believed in every single one of these pills I ever prescribed, and that because of my own healing experience, you know, which is always almost always the portal for doctors who leave who leave the matrix, um, you know, healing myself from Hashimoto's thyroiditis, I had a lot of red flags raised, and then I became concerned about informed consent and not telling patients the things that are in the science, and eventually I put down my prescription pad, right. And so it ended up being so far an interesting thing where a number of psychiatrists have offline now contacted me and expressed more of an interest in what it is oh. that I've been doing. So, so perhaps I am positioned with one foot in each world to really bring sort of like a, a sampling hors d'oeuvre platter or something of your work uh, to these people who would otherwise not know even where to begin to decipher what it is that you're talking about. And, you know, your work completely changed my life as it has so many people for so many people, because I was ready to receive it. And not only that, I needed it in order to proceed with my um, purpose, you know, here on the planet, because otherwise, I would have been coming at it from the perspective of righteousness, which is a very comfortable place for me, you Mm. know, and I would have been coming at it from a place of beating the enemy, right? So now that I'm on the other side, and I understand that pharmaceuticals are, you know, very questionable interventions, um, how do I convince everyone that I'm right? And how do I beat the pharmaceutical companies into submission? You know, that was sort of my approach. And as you have educated me and so many others, you know, this is only a means of further reinforcing the very reality that you feel is corroding the human experience from the inside out, right? We want to move past it, there has to be a way to celebrate a different kind of experience, you know, sort of like that. Uh, Bucky Fuller quote that you know that there's a way to make the current model obsolete you know by really creating something so beautiful uh, and compelling even amidst all of this wrongness and it's interesting what you're saying about sort of people who are in or out of the grid because I would say the vast majority of my patients most of whom come to me for uh, self-described or self-identified depression right some who come to me for anxiety or inattention and a smaller quotient for bipolar and schizophrenia diagnoses, but most of them are failing at life, right? Mm -hmm. So they save for like months and months to even come to my office. You know, they're not in any, you know, sort of um, identifiable um, framework succeeding, you know, financially or whatever. And it really occurred to me recently, I would say in the past year that perhaps one of the things I'm here to do is to help artists, you know, in the broadest definition of that, sort of come back into their bodies, you know, to, to inhabit in a trusting way, their own organism. And, you know, so that they can help divine this path that you refer to, you know, to do to, to that more beautiful world, because I, because I am still in, in this infrastructure credentialed, and I have a, pretty office on Madison Avenue. And, you know, I put a lot of money into my education and I, and I meet all those stupid antiquated boxes of, you know, sort of validating the import of what I have to say. It's not lost on me that I have no original ideas and I am just a really good, I think curator of a lot of really ancient information. You know, that has been around for a long time principles that drive Chinese medicine and Ayurveda and naturopathic, um, you know, principles that coming from me with my degrees seems to be at this point in time, like right. used with a placebo effect that would be otherwise hard to generate. So maybe that is how I can, you know, sort of channel some of that um, empowerment to, to, to my patients. I don't know, but I, I'm aware of that sort of.
1: Um, well, also like, I think that, that this ancient knowledge, uh this, that you're talking about, even people who are very deeply embedded in the matrix, there's a part of them that really wants to believe that too. But when the story that they're living in is very, very strong, it's they're too guarded to be able to really access that. But yeah. th- there comes a point where it's not working quite so well anymore. But they still they're still not gonna listen to someone like me because they're still that gatekeeper. Yeah. But if you can reassure the gatekeeper, which you can using your credentials and generally civilized comportment and appearance, which is something that I'm not always that good at, you know, you can kind of reassure those gatekeepers and give them permission to step into a much larger understanding of self and world. Another thing that came to me, I mean, you know, the, the essay Mutiny of the Soul that yeah. I wrote and then used as a basis to review your book. Sometimes if I'm, interacting with a depressed person, I'll almost even say congratulations you know, on the strength of your spirit that enabled you to pull back despite all of the pressures on you to continue to participate. Yeah. You went into this space between. You, went, you, you stepped away from the world or the life that had become the wrong life. And then after now, maybe you're ready for the next stage to re-engage life in a different way. And that... Is something So one of the delusions or <clears throat> conceits of our culture is that whatever you're supposed to do, you're supposed to do it on your own, using your own strength of will. And, you know, first you got to figure it out or get the instructions or somehow find what to do and then you do it. But what I discover is that like this reengagement of life needs help. It needs an activator. It needs a supporter. It needs very often a community. Um, it needs a mentor sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then maybe that's, you know, when someone's at that place in their lives and they come to you, it could be very useful, like super powerful. Sometimes it might even require just like yes. a word. Totally. You know? Uh, and then the other part though is the community part. And so I'm interested in, like, you're doing, like, there's only, you know, so many of you, one probably, and various allies, but, but, you know, the, the longing now, For a new story, as I describe it, is so vast Mm -hmm. as our as many 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 people at the same time are entering that spot of you know this really isn't working anymore. Just coming to you one on one isn't going to do it. So you've done the like now you're doing like an online program. Is that working as well? I mean, because um this is an inquiry for me too. Like I've dabbled in online programs, especially around the the food and diet stuff. I'm thinking now maybe like what it really needs is community and like how's that working for you? For you?
2: Yeah, it's interesting because I uh, I can be a real lone wolf and have a mercenary nature, and so sometimes the idea of community, honestly, on the surface, sort of grosses me out. Like I feel like, oh yeah, whatever. That's for other people, like to indulge in some kumbaya type energy that I don't have any need for, and
1: is. Is really we're, we're going to end the interview with a, with a round of kumbaya, by the way. I hope right. <laughs> For this micro community.
2: So it was, I was a very, very late comer to this concept uh, just by my construction, I think, uh, temperamentally. And then as you said, the nature of my work with patients is, is dyadic. And in fact, it's almost paternalistic. Like my, mm-hmm. I, have, I rule with a very, you know, sort of like apply a heavy hand in my practice. And it's Saturnian almost. Like I, you know, I, I expect a lot of my patients, and they're coming to me because they're ready. And I have very little patience for sort of setting the bar lower than I know they can set it for themselves. So it's it's a bit of a masculine energy that mm-hmm. you know, so to speak. That I bring to the to the complementarity here, right? And and it seems to be designed because I am in a way that I'm not even in my normal life with patients. Um, and what seems to happen is that there's some sort of a transfer of agency, so that in a couple of months, often depending on how long the psychiatric medication taper can take, but there's this transfer, and then they have activated all sides and can go on their own, um, and that seemed to have worked to the extent that I thought, okay, how, how where do I you know, what role do I play in, in this alchemy? You know, like how essential of an ingredient am I? Cause I wasn't sure. I am an activist first and in it, you know, to to, to move the needle, to to change conversations about big ticket items like what is normal, <laughs> you know, what is healthy.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, you know, how can we understand you know, what we are doing when we are medicating large swaths of the population into altered states of consciousness that are largely complicit with um, the world-destroying machine, right? So these big questions are what I wake up to address, you know, every single day in whatever way I can. And I realized early on that there was, um, there was there were grave injustices at work in the field of psychiatry, and the psychiatry is arguably positioned, as you know, I, very auspiciously, right? To, because of its absence of any objective testing, anyone could, could you know, fall prey to its uh, influence. And I practice in New York where, you know, two doctors, even residents, can take away your civilian rights and inject you against your will and keep you confined and even locked up and transferred to a state facility for an indefinite period of time. So this is, you know, quite um, heavy stuff we're talking about, right? So once I began to learn more about the truth around the history of psychiatry and and its current practices, I knew that I needed to get at least the information in the hands of as many people as possible. And again, understanding that maybe I'm in um, this particularly privileged position of being an apt messenger, right? And so I wrote this book. And I thought, okay, this is the way to do it. It's through a book. People think books are important sources of information and they already are expecting to get something, you know, of some legitimacy from a book. But I really wanted to transfer the experience, right? Because my patients become activists themselves, often go on to become healers because they've had an experience. Because you don't, as you know, change anyone's mind through information. It just doesn't work that way. You change someone through an experience of inhabiting a different truth. And it's become really clear to me that a really simple roadmap to that is clearing the, the sort of um, white noise in your physical experience, resolving things from ranging from constipation to insomnia in the space of a couple of weeks, because that's how forgiving the body is, uh, and and reclaiming an agency around your own experience of your body in this world that can then feed forward into shifts and changes that have been long neglected, you know, in in your, your general life. So, all of this is to say that community was no part of my treatment model at all, and Then, I started to, because I follow the medical literature pretty obsessively, and I started to read a literature that talks about how the body actually potentially has embedded inflammatory signaling around social isolation, so that actually there may even be messages um, on the, the, you know, sort of, so to speak, chemical level in the body that draw us back to the tribe if we have self-isolated. And... This is pretty compelling because if you look at depression as being like fundamentally a healing uh, state for the body, mind, soul, however you want to look at it, um, to think that actually there are embedded messengers in the body that actually are drawing you back towards contact, love, your know, loved ones, um, drawing you back into connection, you see how sort of um ancestrally supported this model really is and so it was through that scientific lens that i began to sort of think about okay so what is the role of community obviously you know you can see the portals that i need to begin to examine like common sense and then i began to have my own experience because i never had a community and again have always been sort of like a bit of a loner and as my life began to fall apart you know as so many of ours have frankly over the past couple of years I had some of the more transcendently healing experiences that I never even knew were possible in the kundalini community, kundalini yoga community, and I began to feel aware that something was missing, right? It's like one of the most poignant human experiences is to become aware of something you needed and you didn't even know you needed. Mm -hmm. And so as I was having this parallel experience I was developing this course over three years to again bring this direct to the individual you know in a more handheld way I developed this online program so that no one has to see a doctor you don't have to find some fancy doctor like me or a functional medicine doctor or a naturopath or anything you can do this totally on your own with some structured guidance I do believe that we are fairly programmed to invest and I know I wouldn't even begin to enter in economics conversations with you um, because I don't have that sophisticated an understanding of this. But I do I do believe that there is something in the tension of investing financially. So I knew that I wanted to sell it for that reason. Even though I do give a ton of information away free on my website, I don't find that it has quite the impact you know, that these more structured engagements have. And what I found was that from the beta launch, the first run, you know, after three years, we like did the unveiling, right? And this beta launch, I, I had no idea what to expect. I didn't know if this would, quote unquote, work, if people would get it. I, these people could have been anyone from anywhere in the world. I have no idea their level of motivation or appropriateness. And meanwhile, you know, to get an appointment with me in private practice, it's like a Harvard application. It's like a, it's like a match.com, you know, alchemy that I'm looking for, right? So without that, how would this work? And I realized after we began to get the testimonials in of people's, like you said, like all they needed was like, like a little tap. And, and this course was that, right? So all they needed was like this minor um, tipping point influence and their entire lives were changing. You know, people losing diagnoses from autoimmune conditions to psychiatric diagnoses, coming off of medications, having like major shifts, like deep feelings of gratitude, all this stuff I never thought was possible remotely and i realize it's not the information and there the information is available everywhere it's available in the book it's available online it's available from other people it's the community so as a part of this group there's like an online facebook community like you have and it's a private group and unlike so many of the online groups in psychiatry or in any realm of pharmaceutical in- injury, whether it's vaccines or you know antibiotics with flocks cases or whatever, there's a lot of rage, right? A lot of pain, a lot of rage and the communities end up, you know, sort of embodying that vibration, so to speak. Right. And I've, I've watched yeah. that because that's how I taught myself how to taper patients off of psych meds is from patients themselves. So I've been on these, boards and in these groups. And it's very challenging, understandably so, like energy to be in. For whatever reason, the energy of this group is very different. It's super um, embracing, really open, really expansive. And, you know, I really sort of sometimes hate this word, but
1: it's really loving. What's the name of the course again? Or how does someone say
2: Yeah. Talk? So it's, it's Vital Mind Reset.
1: Vital Mind Reset. Okay. Yeah. So I hope it's not too abrupt, too abrupt a shift that no. came to me. Well, a couple of things. One was that when you were first saying that you read stuff about the inflammatory effect of isolation and so on and so forth, I was like, come on, Kelly. I'm rolling like,
2: your eyes. I know.
1: Like, is that why you decided? To- say <laughs>
2: much. Listen, I'm being honest. <laughs> that's
1: really, that's super nerdy.
2: Um, <laughs> that It's sad. It's like, it reminds me of that example I heard you give when you were, you, when you were speaking once, when you were saying like if a parent needs to be persuaded about why care for their child like that's pretty much the place that i was in Uh and i frankly i think a lot of people particularly in the scientific community are in they need to be reminded of why to be human
1: another thing here that i want to bring up you know i'm involved in a lot of different fields i guess you could say and from the big picture perspective sometimes these can all like Something like this can seem <clears throat> rather narrow mm. um, in the context of, you know, species extinction, perhaps, or um, global climate change or something like that. Uh, but and most of the people listening to this know that I reject that logic mm. that validates the big thing over the small thing.
3: Mm.
1: And um, mostly because our world is not linear and we don't know actually how change happens in the world. It can start with something very small and seemingly insignificant. And then something that seems really big just creates ripples on the surface and doesn't change the deep currents. Uh, But another thing that just came to me while you were talking, when you said you were speaking of medicating large swaths of the population in order to keep them compliant in the way things are already. You know, I've been reading stuff on plant intelligence, Stephen Buhner's book, for example. So it turns out that and probably any indigenous person already knows this, but that intelligence is not and consciousness and awareness and sentience and, and, and pretty much everything we associate with beingness is not located in humans alone. Yeah. And that so, for example, there's mycorrhizal intelligence, you know, plant like root and mycorrhizal networks are more complicated than brain tissue and use a lot of the same neurotransmitters. There's serotonin, there's dopamine, there's epinephrine, there's norepinephrine, like everything. All all of them are used in the plant world, too. So given that these uh, medications often do not easily biodegrade, Mm. they're actually getting into everything. So it's not just the swaths of the human population that are getting medicated. It's the entire population who drinks drinking water that that the, the residues get into. And not only humans, but animals, plants, um, it's getting into everything. So there is also, this planet is a living being. So climate is not just a matter of these kind of chemical inputs, and it has a mechanical effect to raise or lower temperature. Yeah. The, the community of life, just like a human being does, or any organism, the community of life regulates the planet. So. If it is compromised in its intelligence and its responsiveness, you spoke of a blunting of of perception and, and sense. If it's compromised in its in its intelligence, then it's not going to do that as well. So I think that that's just another way that that all of this is connected.
2: Yes, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's this philosophy, which is obviously native to so many indigenous cultures, particularly probably African, which is that the sickness of one is the sickness of all, right? So we see that reverberating on so many different levels. You're talking about neuro so to speak neurochemicals, right? But it's also in terms of the microbiota and, you know, the the decimation of these organismic ecosystems internally, you know, to ourselves. And then even at the soil level and even at the cloud level, you know, that we can look at how there's been a biodisruption and, you know, sort of the etymology of the word dysbiosis, right? Which is wrong living, wrong Mm -hmm. way of living. And um, what I find really most profound about psychiatric uh of so the, the role of psychiatric illness so to speak in all of this is that there's really an encouragement you know a sort of fostered lack of awareness right because if you're sick and you know you're sick like you have you have cancer so to speak and all of your efforts are going towards like fighting that and you know sort of putting that into submission there's still this divided you against the problem Um, Mm -hmm. Which obviously is a big part of your advocacy is to healing that divide but in in the realm of psychiatry because it's so pervasive and it's such a broad net without any degree of um, Discernment really I mean anyone and everyone will ultimately be Encompassed by this net on the planet right where everyone begins to consider the possibility of what their life might be like with medication No one will escape characterization, I think, right? So this is why it's relevant. And part of it is that then what you lose is your awareness of the the sickness, right? So you can lose, in this blunting of consciousness, you lose any sort of sense that anything is awry or amiss. And it's a different thing than other kinds of treatments that leave you with that sense of sickness, of being sick. Uh, and so I find it really interesting how many of my patients go many decades actually of their lives willfully unexamining major questions and not identifying necessarily as being actively sick and so what is you know what are the consequences of that? What are the consequences of a of a sick planet reflecting our human sickness, like this shared experience of illness um but if people aren't even aware that there's Necessarily, this kind of problem, and I think that kind of blunting is what makes psychiatry so um, so much of an interference with what is otherwise possible through, you know, an experience of intense um, grief, suffering, pain, you know, which is attendant to many other kinds of illness. And, you know, I think that that's part of what you I've understood you to speak about is that re, you know, contacting this grief, um, coming into a place where we can really inhabit it is really the only portal out um, and the only potential for, you know, all of these paths to emerge which we can't even visualize now because like you know when you get in into the sort of like soil networks level of things you're thinking okay how can this possibly self-correct you know is it embedded in, in nature's intelligence to even accommodate for this you know to detox itself from petrochemicals for example and you know that's the way we think about it because it's the only way we know to think about it but as you you suggest I mean there are there are paths forward from here that we can't quite get visualized And those are the ones that we should get excited about
1: every day. You know, like those are the ones that should. It's like it's like you were saying. Actually, you said the body is incredibly forgiving. Like people can heal. You've seen it happen. Totally. Like in two weeks. Totally. From years and years of abuse. Yes. So when I hear those stories, some of which are like medically inexplicable according to conventional medicine, when I hear those stories, I feel very reassured because I'm. I realize that the same. Healing is also possible on the level of an ecosystem or of a body politic. And again, like we're facing a situation, especially now in the body politic, that seems like a a terminal illness. I mean, the amount of delusion and hatred out there, I'm on, sorry to say on both sides of the political Mm -hmm. spectrum is just like, I, I, I sometimes just sigh in despair when I read the headlines. And the same thing, I'm reading a book now called The Once and Future World, beautiful book about nature as it once was and how it could be. We don't have any idea of the decimation. Like what we consider to be pristine wilderness is already so highly degraded right. from the way it used to be, you know, from migrations of fish up the Hudson that were so enormous that they would create a wave, like a tidal bore, like, you know, Coming up the river, I mean, like just the the abundance of nature and flocks of birds that darken the sky just was, you know, just slowly degraded over time, and we don't even know how yeah. good it could be
2: like monocropping. Like we think we're yeah. just there's just
1: one kind of broccoli. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, but but this uh, potential for thriving life that exists isn't actually that far away, you know. And I think one one thing that your work and the work of so many other people in the holistic medicine field point to is that it's just the incredible power of healing. Our despair is founded in the same story that's behind the destruction of the planet. Mm-hmm. The same limited causality. The same, you know, if we don't know a linear mechanistic cause and effect way to make the change happen, then it can't happen. Like right. when, we're, when we're stuck in that,
2: right. it right. is isn't possible. It's almost a binary, yeah, sort of path. Yeah. And I would say, I would take the, the sort of analogy even a step farther because, you know, if we think about, um, one of the portals to radical remission or healing or spontaneous sort of cures, all these cases we've heard of, and, you know, undoubtedly, we, we know that the first ingredient is, is acceptance, right? Mm-hmm. So if the first ingredient is non resistance, then maybe that's also the case on this meta-planetary level. And if the place that you get shuttled to, you know, once you relinquish that resistance and once you allow and embrace um, your experience of pain, suffering, and grief, then if it's any analogy to, to the experience of healing, then it takes you somewhere That involves a lot of shedding, right, Mm -hmm. to to refine exactly how this new place is going to look, and it never looks, as I mentioned, the way your former life used to look, right? So it's so much more expanded and rich and vibrant and vital, uh, and nothing that was even possible in the old psychology but this shedding, you know, sometimes it's family and friends, sometimes it's jobs, you know, I've written about how I have about a 90% divorce rate from beginning to end of treatment, you know, in my office, which sometimes is only a matter of five months. Yeah. And that struck me, you know, one day, I sort of realized, like, well, another one. And it's, it's the kind of shedding that is necessary to fully
3: inhabit
2: a new space that is predicated on different truths. Right. And so maybe this is exactly the template that can reverberate on, on a planetary level. Maybe we're seeing micro examples all the time of the type of healing we think is, I mean, there. before I read your book, More Beautiful World, I literally was crying myself, literally crying myself to sleep at night, every night. This was after SB 277 passed in California. And I thought, okay, look around, look at this planet, like there's, we're done. There's no way I brought two children onto this earth. I can't fix it. I've tried so hard to, you know, change the tide. And it's not working. People aren't listening. You know, the 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 government is only doing land grab everywhere it possibly can. And I'm raising my white flag. I give up because I couldn't see, as you were saying, how we possibly could get from glyphosate in the rainwater and mandated vaccines to a place of Rightness, and now yeah. I understand that I'm not meant to see it. I'm only meant to continue to um, dedicate myself to embodying the principles that make sense to me every single day on this micro level, right? Like mm-hmm. on on this tiny n of one level and it works. We all know that it that one instance of healing has has an impact and reverberative butterfly effect or morphic resonance effect if you want to call it that, you know, planetarily. I think we've all yeah. seen it.
1: So it's not only that, that from the sick state, from the depressed state or whatever the state that people come to you in, it's not only that they can't see how healing could happen, it's also that they can't they're they don't even have a vision of what a healed Self would look like. But like the Correct. things that, that they shed are things that they maybe thought were essential to their happiness. One like time. they do it saying, I want you to fix my marriage. I want you to fix my job. And they end up losing the marriage and losing the job. Correct. And coming to a place where that, that's not even visible on the radar from where they are. Correct. And I really think that the same thing is going to happen collectively because I get glimpses of what this world could be. And it's just so beautiful that I can hardly even hold the image for more than two seconds. And it's something that, that is like, it just makes you want to fall on the ground in awestruck reverence. How inconceivable it is, how different it is from what we have today. And like you were saying though, it's not like waving a magic wand that it happens. You know, it's not like someone goes to you. I want, you know, it's just if I find the right healer, they'll magically fix me. Cause usually what that, what that entails is some further elaborated version of where they already are. So this, what you're saying about grief. Um, I mean, I know like both of us are into this kind of thing, Francis Weller's work. Um, but this, in fact, I was just writing that, that essay I wrote recently, the lid is off also gets like into that, you know, the, when the hidden, the hidden has to become visible. Yes. The The pain that was underneath the surface has to come out somehow. Otherwise it keeps running the show from underneath. That's you right. don't even know what's happening. So that's happening now, this surfacing of the pain, it's happening on a cultural level now, like with the standing rock stuff, you know, the history yeah. of genocide is becoming visible. The history of racism and slavery is becoming visible. Like all of these these well kept secrets, the the dirty laundry, you know, that were kept in the closet, um, and were preventing us from really finishing where we are now, they're all coming out. And so yeah. And, and so what's happening on a personal level is happening on a collective level, too.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I would just add briefly is that I think that when you talk about falling on the on the floor with this feeling. I, I that's what's led me to to believe that a state of gratitude is really the antidote to depression, so to speak. Like it's not happiness. Happiness is like a it's like this it's like a a sort of um, you know, Splenda level, you know, <laughs> artifact of our contemporary understanding of the human experience to strive for happiness. Because I think that when you feel and you touch gratitude, and this is what my patients tell me sometimes after, you know, beginning meditation, for example, or sometimes even spontaneously out of nowhere, just feeling like they can inhabit their bodies again. It's like this wave of a sensation I've struggled to define. Mm. I never felt it in my whole life before everything fell apart. But often when things are really at that moment of shedding, like really at that place of crisis, really at that space where you just can't see, you know, what could possibly be on beyond, you know, where it is that you are at, at the edge of the cliff. It's like one of my um, patients said, you know, she got to the end of the edge of the cliff and, sh- and she thought she would fall, but she flew. And it's like this poetic example of how you can come to have this experience of expanded energy and gratitude for all of it. Like the shit, the beauty, the pain, the ecstasy, like the full spectrum Of the minutiae that is so meaningless, you can't even be bothered to pay attention to it, to the gravity that is so deep you can barely hold it in your consciousness, like all of it at once. And you just have this momentary contact with a feeling of, wow, this is amazing, Mm -hmm. of wonder, right? And so once you've had that, you can't unknow it. And it's really hard then to convince yourself that everything is lost, right? So all those future moments where you come into contact with, The feeling that everything is terrible and awful and wrong and lost are slightly mitigated, if not massively mitigated by the fact that you once knew at one moment in time, you know, what that feeling of gratitude. And I think, you know, you've helped expand my awareness of where that can come from. You know, Weller's work, for example, he talks about ritual as being like the primary uh, portal from his perspective of where that gratitude can come from. You know, it can come from meditation. It could come from plant medicine. It can come from You know, lovemaking, it can come from so many different um, experiences, but I think that many of us are attracting, so to speak, uh, you know, attracting that, like, just minute to minute, like, contact with with this very different um, state, very different way of inhabiting your emotional experience. And it can happen in the midst of depression, in the midst of, like, your worst despair. In fact, that's most often when it's going to happen. And so sort of feeling that possibility, I always say to to people who talk to me with skepticism about, you know, my uh, sort of of approach or perspective on what's possible, you know, because I get criticized a lot, like, oh, well, your approach is for the worried well, you know, it's not for your Madison Avenue people. And it's certainly not the case, you know, that I think this is the perspective that is Easily embraced if it feels like there's a little yes inside, you know, mm-hmm. to the possibility that it, it brings. So.
1: Well, my hour is up. You'll have to send me the bill. <laughs> we can do a gift exchange. Yeah, obviously, we could keep going. Um, so but I'll end and now maybe we'll do another installment another time. Uh, so this has been Charles Eisenstein and Kelly Brogan, MD, in conversation. So fun!
2: Thank we'll you. So,
1: yeah.
0: this has been a new and ancient story with your host, me, Charles Eisenstein. This is entirely a gift-based podcast. By that, I mean I never market to subscribers or withhold premium content for a price, or do affiliate marketing or have advertising on my site. None of that. Instead, I rely on supporters. If you would like to support this work, you can subscribe at newandancientstory.net for a small monthly amount. Uh, You can also subscribe for free. Either way, you will be notified automatically every time a new podcast episode comes out. At the same site, you can also find archived episodes along with my blog, which is also called A New and Ancient Story. The rest of my work, essays, articles, books, videos, recordings, things like that, are mostly on my other site, charleseisenstein.net. So thank you very much for listening. I'll be with you again next time.